Welcome to the Happy Pair Podcast, where our ultimate goal is to inspire, educate, and awaken your curiosity, and overall, to help you to become healthier and happier. We're Dave and Steve, identical twins who started a veg shop nearly 20 years ago. Since then, it's expanded into a social following of over one and a half million people, nearly 50 million views of our videos, nearly half a million books sold, cafes, farms, apps, courses, food products to help you to eat more veg. We speak to thought leaders, health experts, trailblazers and specialists of all kinds, from the ones you know to those you've never, ever heard of. This week's podcast is sponsored by Vivo Barefoot Shoes. We've been wearing them for six years and genuinely they are our favourite shoes and that is all we wear beyond being barefoot. Yeah, they're really, really great. They have tons of different varieties. Uh, you get 15% off with the code HAPPYPAIR15. And if you don't like them, what do you do, Dave? You can send them back within 100 days and get your full money back. Wow, so you have no risk. No risk. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. So if you're interested, vivobarefoot.com and the code is HAPPYPAIR15. Today's guest is the wonderful Catherine Pinkham. Catherine is one of the UK's leading insomnia specialists. She's founder in the Insomnia Sleep Clinic. Uh, and one thing that really di- helps her differ, stand out, is that she approaches sleep or insomnia, not from a sleep hygiene perspective, but from the psychological perspective. She uses CBT for insomnia, that's cognitive behaviour therapy, and how one can address the stress and the mind aspect towards sleep. Yeah, as well as being an expert in terms of the hygiene as well. So there's a lot of tactics here. We lean into the one, the difference between the male um, system and the female system and how it differences, how the menstrual cycles of women's sleep can sometimes be affected and also in menopause. We talk about how sometimes when you wake up in the middle of the night and struggle to go back to sleep, the best thing you can do is give up. And similarly, we talk about how restricting your amount of time in bed can actually be beneficial to to having prolonged better sleep. This one is really wonderful. She's a wonderful sleep expert and so practical. She's a mother of two, so she could lean into so many different areas of it. And uh, yeah, I I really think everyone, I would love everyone to listen to this. And uh, there's some great takeaways. So without further ado, we give you the wonderful Catherine Pinkham. Yeah, well, it's great to have you. It really, really is. Because uh, I know we've we've looked at sleep before, but it's it was with a man. And not to say that that's different, but I think it's very different. Um, like our different systems and our different hormonal cycles and different phases affect men and women quite differently and certainly in terms of sleep. So I think that's one area I'd love to jump into is kind of like, is there differences? Like you are obviously a woman, so you'll be much more aware of the kind of the issues that women go around, you know, that impact women more than men in terms of sleep. And do you find there is a difference? There's obviously overarching things, but are there specificities? Um, so I think in general, we find on, so on my, um, on my course, the people that we work with, there is more women than men. Um, whether or not that could be that women suffer with sleep problems more than men, or whether it's just that women are more likely to take it up as an option to fix it in that way than men. Maybe men would prefer just a one-to-one or or, the, or maybe they just cope with it in different ways. Um, but certainly women um, are more vulnerable to sleep problems. So it's really normal to find that um, your period cycle will affect how well you sleep. So with a rise in temperature, we tend to sleep worse. Um, certainly menopause and perimenopause, they are huge triggers for insomnia in, in women. And they it sort of stems from a, a with the reduction of estrogen and temperature changes that can trigger uh, hot sweats and, and that kind of thing can wake you up, which is sort of an obvious um, tie-in. But we are also more anxious during that time. You know, there's a lot of change. Things are very different. It tends to be, a, you know, maybe a phase in life, which um, women are having to get used to. So there's a lot more on your mind. You're maybe working as well. You've maybe still got family at home and those kind of things. So there's a lot on at that time. So it becomes the perfect storm really for insomnia. That's not to say that we can't do things to fix it, but yeah, I would say that all the triggers are there in that time of life for, for women to suffer more. Um, and, 
and I, I don't know if this is personal, case specific to me of the women in my life, but I find that more of the women in my life have more sleep issues than the men. Like I'll hear them and maybe it could be just that they talk about it and the men don't, but I'll, I'll consistently hear like, I couldn't shut my head off or my head was so busy or I couldn't, I just got up and I couldn't stop thinking about work. And I hear that more from the women in my life than the men. And I don't know if that's completely anecdotal or is that something that you find in your work? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think that women are probably more likely to talk about it. Um, anxiety, mood problems in general, I think women are happy to chat, to chat about. Um, and hopefully as you know, time goes on, men are feeling more like they can as well. Um, I guess from my own experience and the, some of the women that I've worked with and friends of mine, it's just that if you are working and you have a family, it's just, there is a lot on and our society now is very 24 hour, you know, with our phones and things with the best will in the world, you kind of can't, you can't really do anything without using your phone or using a laptop. So we're very connected all the time. And, um, I guess what we lack that maybe we used to have that really helped sleep was that for my parents, you know, if my mum and dad took a coffee break at work, they had a break. So they would sit down and they would have a cup of tea and they'd go back to work 15 minutes later. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I have to make a real effort to do nothing for 15 minutes. You know, I would do a quick job on my phone. I would, I would do something. So what happens is by the time we get to bedtime, if we haven't spent any time during the day uh, processing things that are bothering us, um, taking a moment to breathe, calm down, you know, we're not doing anything to sort of help our system get into the right space for sleep. Then actually when you get into bed and it's quiet and it's dark, it's the perfect sort of um, breeding ground for your mind. Your mind is going to start wanting you to look at these things. And if there's something that you're worrying about, it's the perfect time. So either as you're trying to get to sleep or three o'clock in the morning, you know, there's not a lot else to do other than have, um, you know, potentially negative thoughts or, or worrying thoughts at that time. So the, a lot of the work that I do with women is not just around what do we do at bedtime and during that, but it's also what can we do during the day to to try and stop that coming at all. Very clever. And I, I, I love your your practice of encouraging people to kind of almost have a worry journal to actually take time to sit down and write down like kind of hypothetical worries versus actual worries that are intrinsically there now. And I think that's such a wonderful practice. I wonder if you could talk about that because it's so relevant to everyone listening. Yeah. And I, yeah. So I always say to people, the first step, not just for someone with a sleep problem, but most of us and certainly anyone with anxiety is get into the habit of writing things down. So our our natural tendencies, if we're worrying about something, especially if it's a hypothetical worry and it's not actually happening. So like, you know, during COVID, what if I get COVID or what if I lose my job? Um, what we tend to do is try and ignore it because we go, well, it hasn't happened yet. Don't be silly. Uh, we don't really like the feeling of worrying about something. So we try and ignore it, distract it, get away from it. But actually what I really encourage people to do is face it, face it head on. You know, the, the more we ignore something, the bigger it becomes. And the, and the less you feel like you can cope with it. So anxiety is basically a, a high belief that a bad thing is going to happen, i.e. lose my job or I won't sleep tonight, and a low belief that if that thing happens, I can't cope with it. Whereas if we can bring those two things back in line and say, well, the chances of it happening aren't 100%, even if it does, evidence shows that I probably will survive it, then we can take some of the pressure out of things. And one of the ways to do that is to spend 15 minutes every day writing everything down. So Certainly worries and, and those kind of things can go on there, but actually it can be anything. Just empty your mind. And it's a really therapeutic way of saying to your brain, here is the space to think about everything you want to think about, however silly it may seem, however unrealistic it is. I'm just going to allow you the space to, to be heard and to hear it. And you get it all on paper. And more often than not, that black and white exercise makes you see things in a slightly different way. You realize you don't have a hundred things to worry about. You've perhaps got three and they're big and they matter, but there is only three of them. Um, <clears throat> maybe they will have the same sort of theme. And then I encourage people to separate them into two columns. So 
what is a real problem? A real problem is I've lost my job or I have got COVID or um, I can't afford to pay my mortgage. That's a real problem and it's happening right now. They're all based in the present tense. Yeah. And the, and the good thing about a real problem is we don't tend to be worrying about a real problem because it's actually happening. So therefore we're doing it. And I, I heard this really interesting analogy, which made sense, which was if you're worried about a tiger eating you, by the time it's eating you, you're not worried anymore. And I was like, <laughs> that's so true about a big worry is that when it's actually happening, it's a very different experience from worrying about it happening. Not, not more pleasant, but it's a different one. So if you have lost your job, for example, you, you can make a plan. What are you going to do? Who are you going to contact? How are you going to go about getting another job? Um, the rest of the list, and um, usually the vast majority of the list for everyone, me included, would be hypothetical worries. So, you know, our brains are really clever. We can feel just as bad with a hypothetical worry as we would as if it was real. And that's, you know, that's amazing that our brain can do that because it keeps us alive. You know, I can imagine what it'd be like to get eaten by a dog. So therefore I'm going to stay away from the dangerous dog. So we can, we can imagine how bad something is. But the problem is when it comes to sort of day-to-day life, what we're then flooded with is adrenaline and this, and the feeling that that's actually happening to us when it's not. So those what-if worries, the way to manage them is to just allow them to be there, write them down. You know, what if I lose my job? What if I then go on to not have enough money to pay a mortgage? What if I lose my house? Where will, where, where will I live? I'll be homeless. Follow the whole chain down, however silly and unrealistic it is. Just let your brain do it. And what we find is that you've then got a situation where you're either making a plan for something or you're just simply letting something be there. And then you can choose to let it go. And it's far less likely to try and come back in at three o'clock in the morning if you allowed your brain just to do what it wanted to do. So I think one of the biggest things is worry is just worry. If you want to worry, worry, but in a productive way at the right time, not 24 hours a day in the background. It's like, it's like, it's like taking the wind out of it. Like, you know, it really is taking the the foundation or the whatever that it's been built on. But yeah, I, I certainly found the same that a, a friend of mine is an actor and he was super into this book called The Artist's Way, which is a book that it's kind of, it's a 12-week process where you're meant to journal and write three pages. They, they call it morning pages, you write them in the morning. But I found I, I just was, I had too much energy in the morning. It was like, I don't want to sit and write things. So I started doing it in the evening and I, and I still have kept it like about two years later that I still, most evenings I'll just ramble. It'll be like a walk around, it'll be a walk around a crazy mind of a million different things but it certainly does feel therapeutic and sometimes I get up in the morning and go what was that thing I was writing about you know because it'll you know I find it really just an effective way it's almost like there is an aspect of of someone listening to you like a page will take every word which you write down and accept it which is almost like it feels like you're being heard like it does feel like there's some aspect of therapy to it so yeah and I, and I think like especially with, with women in menopause like you know they 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 feel as though they're not allowed to, like they're trying to stop themselves feeling um, angry or sad or disappointed about the changes that are happening and what they maybe feel like they're losing. As a part of it, for me, as I say to them, like, you're allowed to feel all that stuff. You know, you're not a saint. It's annoying. Like, that's not how you used to look 10 years ago. It's okay that you're, you know, you're, you're cross that you can't lose weight. Be, be those things. Allow yourself to feel what you feel because if we can just allow ourselves to feel it, write it down, accept it, it tends to disappear on its own anyway. It becomes easier to deal with. So I think sleep, you know, a lot of sleep problems are around us perhaps not taking the time to deal with worries or negative thoughts in a more helpful way. Yeah. And I think that's your big angle on it is that you're approaching from a psychology or a CBT aspect, yeah. which is cognitive behavior therapy. And that that's actually looking at the thoughts and the thought process that hinders or that can possibly lead one to insomnia. Yeah. And I, and I don't, I don't feel like the vast majority of people can fix a sleep problem without managing the psychological aspect to it because um, behaviorally, we can do all the right things to reset your body clock. And I can 
give people all those tips. We can talk about those and they are really important as well. But if the idea of making changes makes you anxious, that will always trigger adrenaline. And the opposite state that we would want to be in to fall asleep would be adrenaline. You know, that's the, the it's fight or flight. It's the total opposite. So if you've had a long history of not sleeping well or not sleeping well before a, you know, a new job or an interview or whatever, we have to psychologically say, well, okay, how do we take the pressure off that situation? Because there's no amount of calamari tea and blackout blinds that are going to change that thought process. That's, that's, in your, that's in your mind. You know, it's a connection that's been made to keep you safe, but, but wrongly in, the, in this instance. So, yeah, I, I really believe that most people can't fix their insomnia without looking at some sort of psychological. So, 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 so how, how does it work or what does it look like? Does that like, because say, for example, I'm someone who's quite anxious. You know, I, I suffer with stress. I have a busy job. I have a busy life. I have a family life. I'm, it's like living in a pressure cooker. And then sleep, I have negative associations with sleep and it feels like it's just this vicious cycle and I can't really sleep. So how would CBT work if I came, how does it work? So do you have problems falling asleep or staying asleep or both? Both. All of it. I don't know. It's just, I, I feel exhausted. Is this you making it up, Dave? Yeah, me making it up, yeah. Just me making it up, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. I'm getting into it. It's role play. It's role play. <laughs> Good job, Dave. I appreciate it. So if I, I'll start from kind of the, the reason how we get into the problem, like why some people have it and some don't, and then we get, then it becomes sort of more clear how to fix it. Um, in order to sleep well, we need to have three different things. So the first thing that we need is a good sleep drive. So if you imagine an appetite, the longer we're out of bed for, the stronger the appetite for sleep becomes. When we wake up in the morning, we start sort of um, building that appetite. And the ideal scenario is that when we go to bed, we are starving, as it were, for sleep. So you fall asleep quickly, you take back a nice deep quality, and then you wake up when your appetite has um, has been met. The thing that works alongside our sleep drive is our body clock. So everyone's heard of the body clock, but if you normally sleep for seven hours, let's say, but for whatever reason you missed a full night's sleep, uh, work or, or whatever it might be, if you went to bed at 7 a.m., you wouldn't suddenly then get seven hours because your body clock doesn't work like that. We can't just sleep at any portion of a 24-hour clock. We have to sleep in the correct portion because there's lots of other things going on while we're asleep. We haven't just like flipped a switch and, and disappeared for seven hours. So the body clock has to be set at a time where, you know, I expect to fall asleep at 10.30 and I expect to wake up about six. And it becomes sort of a pattern and a, and a routine. So our, our brain and our body has to associate that body clock with certain times which is why we end up with a pattern where let's say you wake up at 3 a.m. and you're stressed for an hour or two. Um, if you did that for a week, by the week after, it's become a habit. The body clock is now waking at three, thinking that actually there's something that needs to be done and um, your brain has got a connection now with dealing with stuff at 3 a.m. So we can set a pattern. I mean, that's, that's jet lag. We can change our body clock when we need to. The sleep drive is really important. Our body clock is really important. And thirdly, our connection with our bed. So if you're spending 50% of the time that you're in bed, anxious, stressed, wound up, hot and panicky, then the reality is your, re your connection with your bed is not about sleep. So when you get into bed, your bed becomes a cue for all sorts of negative feelings and experiences and not the ones that, that, that we want. So those are the three things that have to be in place. First. Very good. The one thing that you talk about is to try to restrict sleep restriction, which sounds counterintuitive. You're like, what? Restrict? I want to sleep, but actually narrow the window with which one is in bed so that you can actually build up this almost sleep like hunger. sleep hunger. Yeah. And it exactly, exactly that, that, that sleep appetite. So the first thing that we would um, get people to do, I, I like to call it sleep scheduling, not sleep restriction. I don't think it's just feels so negative sleep restriction. It makes everybody think that I'm going to say like one hour in bed in the middle of the night, which I would never do. So if you imagine that the way that we end up with insomnia is if I was to go to bed tonight and couldn't sleep and that happened for two or three nights, very quickly, I'd be tired. I'd look different. I'd feel different. I'd be more snappy. 
So the first thing I would do is go to bed earlier. I'd maybe cancel a plan. I'd get into bed at nine o'clock instead of 10. So what I'm trying to do is get back the opportunity for sleep. But what I've actually done now is gone to bed too early. My appetite's not there. And don't forget, my body clock has no association with a nine o'clock sleep time. So my body clock's going, I don't really know why I'm in bed because this is not when we switch off. I haven't developed any melatonin by that time. The sleep scheduling is exactly that. So even if you're sleeping poorly, what I would say to somebody is, okay, if you are in bed for eight hours, but you're only getting sort of five, five hours of broken sleep, what we have there is this sort of large window of time in bed and all this time in there associating your bed with all the wrong stuff. So actually, let's just reduce the time in bed to match how much you can currently get. So for example, instead of going to bed at 10 and getting up at six, I'm going to say you don't fall asleep till midnight anyway. So you're going to go to bed at half 11 or midnight. I'm going to set your alarm for half five or six. And what that does is it means that we're getting up nice and early. We're starting that um, sleep appetite. We're building that drive through the day. We're going to bed later. So what we're doing here is we're saying to your body clock, okay, you have no opportunity outside of this window to sleep. So you need to make the most of it. The higher the drive, the faster we fall asleep and the less times we'd wake in the night. And if we did wait, we'd fall asleep faster. So you can clever. It does feel the opposite, but it breaks the pattern. And it's like a short-term solution to help you kind of break the cycle. Almost well, like kickstarting it or something. Or, yeah, like it's yeah, and very I, clever. Yeah, and I, I always say to people, this is not forever. You know, slowly, slowly we start to open up that window when the time is right and you get back to something a bit more, um, perhaps a bit more sociable. But for a lot of people, they find that potentially their expectations are a bit too high. They're expecting to sort of get maybe, you know, nine, nine hours of solid sleep a night and you know, most people can't get that. So I'd say to people, look, if you can go to bed at midnight and get up at 6.30 and it's solid sleep, that's much better for you than having eight hours of broken sleep. Do you, do, on that note, do you think like the average person, most of us nowadays are likely not getting enough good quality sleep because of yeah, I mean, the modern I, lifestyle? I think, yeah, I think sleep is a, the, you know, it's at all time low levels. I think how much sleep people are getting, um, Partly lifestyle, partly that where people are doing the wrong things to fix it. You know, I talk a lot about, um, have you heard of sleep hygiene? Um, yeah. It's kind of like just how you sleep. It's your whole, the manner in which you sleep. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with sleep hygiene in that it's not bad advice. You know, not drinking too much alcohol, not drinking caffeine, too close to bedtime. You know, blackout blinds, calm room. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But there is no evidence at all to support that that fixes a sleep problem. So it's good advice for, you know, you or I, if we want to just generally improve our life and, you know, our, perhaps a little bit of uh, extra sleep quality and falling asleep and feeling relaxed and so on. But if someone has an actual sleep problem, what sleep hygiene does is just adds a load more pressure because then we have someone who goes, okay, I haven't had a tea or a coffee all day, even though I'm shattered. So I've thought about it all day because I'm knackered. Um, I haven't socialized this week because I don't want to work myself up before bed. I haven't turned the telly on in case the blue screen does something. I've had an hour's worth of yoga, a long bath. Now here I am in bed at 9.30, wide awake. So the more people are doing to try and fix sleep, the worse it's getting. Whereas actually my program is much more simple. We're saying actually scrap all of that. You don't need any of that stuff. We don't need to have all those crutches in place to sleep well. Instead, make sure that you're tired enough so your drive is high. Make sure your body clock is set correctly and you're, you're keeping to a nice pattern and work on the psychological side of things so that you're not lying in bed stressed. And that's all we need. We don't have to buy and do all of that other stuff. And th like I said, there's nothing wrong with all of that stuff, but it doesn't fix the sleep problem and it can start making it worse for some people. And, and so by the psychological impact of, of like the psychological aspect of sleep, that's kind of quite stress related and anxiety related. Is that like, 
you know, I, I guess it's that most of us live very demanding lives in terms of phones and emails and work and always on and, and stress also, building. Also, up. I believe, isn't it a better relationship with bed? That if we've kind of had a week of bad night's sleep, you're kind of almost semi, this performance anxiety going into you're like, oh shit. Hope yeah. this or doesn't happen again. It's just associations, yeah. Yeah. as you said, which I thought was really, really clever. It's yeah. like associating chocolate biscuits with reward or whatever it might be, you know, Pavlov's dogs, all those type of associations. You know, and ordinarily when we develop a fear or a phobia of something, we would just avoid it, but we can't avoid going to bed. So you you get stuck in this cycle where you build up this sort of anxiety around this going into battle at bedtime but it's never going to work because of the battles. So then it becomes self-fulfilling. You, you know, you're right. You didn't sleep and um, there's nothing more exhausting than stress. So a lot of the time I'm working with people who say, listen, insomnia and not sleeping will just make you tired, which is rubbish. And I'm not saying it's, that's not a bad thing, but it will just make you tired. But if you're massively anxious and stressed about your lack of sleep, that comes with it a whole host of other problems as well. You know, you can't outsleep stress. You could get 10 hours a night. If you're stressed all day, you're not going to feel any better for the sleep. Um, so it is important to say to people, look, sleep, we have to focus on the sleep, but we have to focus on on, on all of your um, stress levels and all of your kind of uh, the way that you're managing your lifestyle during the day, because we can't just pick it and say, right, let's do 100% focus on that. It just won't work under those circumstances. So a lot of it for people is about acceptance, like saying right now, this is how you sleep. It's not good enough, but it's what you've got. So we're going to put these little um, foundations in place. We're going to work on some psychological stuff. And we're going to write stuff down and try and take the pressure off. But what else could you do to get more energy? What else can you control in your life? And if we can start to move focus a bit, sleep improves anyway, because you're no longer thinking this is the only thing that's going to make me feel better. Um, I mean, and we've all had it where you get a night where you get barely any sleep, but you feel fine. And equally, you get nights where you sleep really well and you feel rubbish. You know, we have a bad night's sleep, perform really well at work. You have a good night's sleep and you cock something up. Like, it's not an exact science. And so I think getting people to come away from this kind of, um, you know, extreme pressure that it has to work every night doesn't help us sleep any better. Yeah, it's not a mathematical equation. Like, it's really not. There's so much variability in it. You know, it's, yeah. And I think that's... There is one... no normal, you know. There, there, there is no, there is nothing that we should be striving for. Like, people, a language that people use around sleep is often, oh, it was working for two nights and then it's gone wrong. And I'm like, no, 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 that, that was just three nights. That's how we sleep. You know, I'm a sleep therapist and I would have a bad night's sleep. Like, it's... I just don't worry about it. I guess that's the difference. People who mm. sleep well generally don't worry about the odd bad night. So we can't, no one sleeps really perfectly every night and feels great for it, unless you have a perfect lifestyle. I'm sure, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah, totally. And one thing you talk about is that, like often we'll say, is that sleep is not just one of the pillars of health. It's the kind of the foundation of health. Because if you kind of get that wrong, you know, if you're tired, your relationships are going to be poor. Typically, you're going to have less energy. Typically, your food choices are going to be less healthy choices. So it really does affect so many things. But you talk about um, how there are periods of life when, were designed almost not to get enough sleep. Like, as you said, when you have a young, a newborn baby, if if we were designed to have lots of sleep, babies would just sleep. It would be no problem. But we're almost designed to be sleep starved at certain phases of life. Yeah. Yeah, what about that? Absolutely. And we, and we can cope with it. You know, we we probably, like I said, we probably have too higher expectations. I work with quite a lot of new mums who are, you know, they have a, a really young baby and they're asking how they can sleep more when the baby's asleep, how can they sleep? And I'm like, but it doesn't work like that. You can't just switch it on and off. You know, you, you accepting that the sleep is going to be broken during this time is, is part of, part of this, you know, it's, we, we will go with it. You're right. Otherwise babies will be born sleeping. It would be so unhealthy for us to have more than one child, you know, it would be dangerous. 
Um, and same with times of stress. If somebody is bereaved or going through um, a divorce, you, you won't sleep well. Um, and that's fine. You know, like don't don't make that another battle on your plate, except that you'll be tired. Even if you were sleeping well, you'd still be exhausted because it's, it's horrible. You know, those kind of things aren't nice. So you just you have to sort of trust the process that keep these foundations in place. You know, don't spend excessive amounts of time in bed wide awake. If you can't sleep, leave the bedroom. If you're lying in bed ruminating, feeling miserable or stressed, then leave the room. So there's still things that you can do during those hard times to protect your sleep, but don't expect too much from it. You know, you can cope with periods of sleep loss. We all can. Such practical advice. Like like the, the big two themes I'm getting off you is number one, lower your expectation. Number two, don't focus on sleep too much because you focus on it. You know, you become too self-aware of it and you feel pressure in it. And then number three, stress seems to be a huge, you know, seems to be one of the bigger factors that influences the quality of our sleep and the length yeah. of our sleep and duration of our sleep. Yeah, and I, I kind of encourage people, A, to, to write stuff down and, and to try and get things out of their head. But also from, I guess, a more physical point of view, trying to get into the habits of, um, you know, mindfulness activity as many times, as you, even if it's only every time you boil the kettle, if just for the length of that kettle, you could try and ground yourself in the moment, that would be a good start. So it's sort of like you want to train your body to be able to relax and calm down and slow down a little bit in preparation for bedtime. Um because this idea that you could run a million miles an hour and be at full adrenaline all day and then just suddenly switch that off and sleep soundly isn't, you know, it's, you, you wouldn't feel refreshed after that. So, yeah, encouraging people to prioritize sleep by making sure you are putting these foundations in place and making time during the day just to try and, you know, calm your system a little bit. Um, but take the pressure off. And there's a lot of stuff, you know, more than ever now, there is a lot of stuff in the media about sleep. And most of it focuses on sleep hygiene. A lot of it is selling sort of gimmicky things, you know, like trackers. Um, you know, I talk a lot about the tracking of sleep and Apple Watches and, and the ring and all those things. Um, <clears throat> so there's so much stuff designed to make us massively focus on it, but sadly not enough sort of evidence-based, you know, NHS recommended evidence that will actually help fix it. Um, I think that's causing more and more of a problem. People are trying really hard to get something, but in a wrong way. And that the, the tracking is actually leading to total performance anxiety in many cases where people are kind of going, <gasps> I didn't get enough REM. Oh my God. Oh no, it's going to be I such woke a six crap six times. Yeah. People, even this morning, I had an email from someone and she's so anxious about her sleep because the Apple Watch is saying she gets 3% of deep sleep. Now, I, I have no idea how it would how that can be accurate you know i and i i kind of i haven't looked into it enough so i shouldn't speak too much about this but there is no way that these things are as accurate as going in for a you know a proper sleep study where everything is geared up for your heart and your brain and your your eye movement it's not it's not the same thing um a lot of them are based on movement we you could have someone who moves a lot but sleeps well somebody who lies still all night but is wide awake like it's they're not it's not always accurate and ultimately what's the point like if someone has insomnia they know they have insomnia you don't need a tracker to tell you that you were awake for three hours last night. You know it because you were there and you were experiencing it. So I'm trying really hard to kind of get get into these places to say it's okay to ask people to track it, but just make sure that at the end of the tracking, we are telling them what to do rather than just saying, okay, you, you have slept really poorly, go to bed early tonight and, you know, try and get a better night's sleep because that doesn't, that's not going to help them. Yeah. I, I love the, like we've talked to a couple of other um people who are involved in sleep and their message was always very like, well, did you wake up and do you feel good? Do you feel any, well, then you got enough sleep. 
Like really basic, simple stuff as opposed to like, you know, tracking it and all the stresses and anxieties around understanding and it's like well you know did you wake up do you feel good do you feel like you get enough sleep well then you probably got enough sleep like it's yeah. really simple and basic and these the, these were people that had spent loads of you know scientific research yeah. in it or whatever no, I um, agree that I always say good quality sleep for me is do you fall asleep pretty quickly if you wake in the night for the toilet can you majority of the time get back to sleep and when you wake up in the morning if you have a cup of tea or coffee can you stay awake until bedtime? And that that's decent sleep. You know, don't don't micromanage it any further than that. Prioritize it, but don't, you know, don't try and make it perfect because it doesn't well, like you, you said you said something there that's um I'm sure it perked anyone listening's ears is when you go to the toilet in the middle of the night and or if you wake up in the middle of the night, what are tactics for getting back to sleep? Because I'm sure that's a question that many people have is, well, what do I do? How do I? Cause do I turn on the light? I was told I don't turn on the light because it stops I, my my melatonin. Oh no, what do I do? <laughs> how, how does, like, because I know it's probably a super common question that you're asked. How do I get back to sleep when I wake up in the middle of the night? So, so generally, if your sleep drive is high, your body clock is set, you haven't got anything massive on your mind, naturally you should pretty much fall back to sleep. If you aren't doing, then first of all, I would use tackle those things. Are you going to bed too early? Are you in bed too long? Um, are you? Do you have a connection with waking up, looking at the time? Everybody does that. We look at the clock or we set this internal alarm clock that says, yeah, well done. You wake up at three o'clock for a wee. Tomorrow night, see you here again. Like we're trying to break these cycles. So don't look at the time. We don't, we don't need to know what time it is. Um, <clears throat> when you get back into bed, the best thing to do, um, and I move away from ever trying to get back to sleep, but when you get into bed, if you can focus on your breath, and I use the sort of the senses, so think about focus on what you can hear, what you can smell, what you can um, what you can feel. So feel the duvet, feel how the pillow feels. Focus on your breath. Anything that grounds you in that moment is not going to help you to get back to sleep, but it's putting you in the place where you can sleep. If you're aware you've been lying there for 15, 20 minutes, you're thinking loads about sleep. You've turned your pillow over a few times. You're you're starting to get a bit hot bothered. Just get out of bed. Don't, don't stay in bed. There's nothing that we can do in that moment that's going to force you to sleep. So go downstairs, have a glass of water, maybe flick the telly on for 10 minutes or read a book and go back to bed when you're sleepy. So in terms of trying to sleep, as soon as you're away, you're trying, you're in a battle and the battle is not, is not, something that you, is not somewhere that you want to be. So sleep is something to do or to, to happen to you. It's not something to try to force upon you. You can't do it. And that if, you're, if you do wake in the, or you're struggling to sleep, don't sit there, try and get up out of bed, get down and, you know, find something, a more positive um, exercise. And what about for people who typically wake up and go to the toilet a number of times a night? Is that just a habit and an association or are some people's bladders just smaller than others or? Well, I, I guess it depends. Like some people, yeah, there's a reason for it. As we get older, we tend to use the toilet more. So it's normal and it's fine as long as you can most of the time get back to sleep. Um, I find sometimes that people who are, who people who have a weak, so who have weak sleep quality, so they're perhaps they're spending far too long in bed, they have a very negative association with the bed, those kind of things. Um, they tend to use the toilet loads, but I would say that's because the second you need the toilet, like even like 1%, you're kind of half awake, so you've realized it and you need to go. If you can increase your sleep drive and make your sleep deeper because you're more tired and your, your connection with your bed is better, then generally you, you, you only wake up for a wee when you really need one, not just because you, know, you suspect you might. So... I think you can improve it. By improving your sleep quality using these techniques, you can go to the toilet there. Yeah, because I notice my kids, they can drink like a litre of water before bed and they won't wake at all. And I notice myself like, I don't drink after six o'clock and I'll, I'll wake at least once, you know, but likely twice. You know, 40 so year like, old man. And I ain't 70. 
<laughs> not yet. Yeah, and I think as long, like I said, as long as you can get back to sleep, it's not something to worry about. But it's just if you're if you're then lying in bed for you know an hour afterwards, then it's becoming part of a cycle that we would want to break with increasing the sleep drive and, and working your mindset. Okay, brilliant. What about, Catherine, someone who might be taking sleeping tablets and depending on those and maybe trying a bit of CBT, how do these differ and what are the benefits and pros of these two? Because sleeping pills, people can, in time, they can start to become something that people depend on. They become a crutch, crutch as part of their sleeping routine or habit. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm not anti-sleeping pills. I think as long as they're being used in the right way. So um, if, I, if, if you are taking them sort of ad hoc, so... I take them every few nights when I've had a run of bad nights or I take it at three o'clock in the morning because I've woken up. For me, that that's really maintaining the problem because you suffer from something called rebound insomnia. Rebound insomnia is when you sleep even worse the night after a sleeping pill than you would have done normally. So your body is, you know, uh, your body and your mind are expecting it to be there and it's not there. So you sleep even worse. And for most people, that second, third night is so bad that their anxiety goes through the roof. They've got even more pressure and worry then on sleep. So the sleep problem gets worse and worse. So I always say to people, if you're, and it's fine to take medication because it can be a good way to kind of um, help you to get back on, on track. But the best way to take it um, with your doctor's support, the best way to take it is the lowest dose that you can take um, and take it one hour before bed every night. So just take it every night consistently. And then if you use the CBT program alongside it, you will notice your drive to sleep naturally increases. Um, you start sleeping a bit better because generally sleeping tablets don't work for very long. The first two weeks, they might work amazingly. After two months, suddenly you have to take twice the dose and you're still not getting very, very much sleep. So if you use them alongside the sleep program, things start to improve. That builds your confidence. And then slowly you wean off them using some of the psychological techniques. So we work a lot with people with sleeping, with sleeping uh, medication for that reason that to be honest, at the moment, you know, that's probably the only thing that doctors can, can do. If you go and see the doctor for insomnia, is give you some sleep hygiene advice and some medication. So um, we, we work with a lot of people who take it. And, and just to say, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is a very, uh, is a different approach to cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. So cognitive behavioral therapy overlaps with cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, of course, in terms of the thought work. But the insomnia program is a very, um, specific program based on sleep. So it's not just a bit of sleep hygiene or relaxation. It's a specific sort of body clock and psychologically based program for insomnia. Time to pay the bills now. Um, as we said, this podcast is sponsored by Vivo Barefoot Shoes. They're really, they're the only shoes we've been wearing for six years. And really, we wouldn't take someone as a sponsor unless we really believe in them. And this is a company and these are shoes that we've seen it in ourselves. Our feet have become more natural. They're stronger. They're wider. I can isolate. There's this kind of movement called toga, which sounds funny and sounds stupid, but it's where you can isolate your toes and move them kind of individually. Individually. And through wearing shoes, at least there's even research from Vivo at universities that your feet muscles will typically improve by 60% within a number of weeks of just wearing barefoot within shoes. Within 100 days, I think 100 it is. Days, so, and even think about it logically that in a house, the foundation or the base of the house is the really the, the most important bit which the structure sits on. And the same way we kind of, we just wear shoes without thinking about it, yet our feet are the foundation. And when you've got them in shoes that actually encourage the natural kind of movements within your feet it enhances every aspect of your anatomy yeah so uh if anyone does want to try them out uh vivo barefoot are offering a 15 percent off with the code happy pair 15 and you have nothing to worry about they're offering a hundred day return policy so if you don't like your vivo barefoot 
you can return them free of charge. Yeah, so check them out. VivoBarefoot.com, full range of shoes for all the family, from formal to casual to kids um, and everything in between. So 15% off, happy pair 15. And what is the definition of insomnia? Like, because I'm sure people who, who have poor sleep will go, oh, I'm an, I'm an insomniac. Yeah. But it might not necessarily be true, you know. So I'm just wondering, what is the definition of it? And um, how do people deal with it? Other than coming to you. The, um, so the official definition is if you have trouble falling asleep, uh, wake through the night and can't get back to sleep and feel unrefreshed. And if that's happening more than three or four nights a week and it's been going on for longer than three months, I think that's the official um, definition. Um, I would say probably if you're having any of those things, then these techniques would nip it in the bud early. I think, you know, I'd always advise people don't wait until it's full blown and you're too anxious to go to bed and you're taking medication. If you can, if you can make a few changes early on, you can fix it early on. Um, most people, what they would do is, I mean, like what, what, what I would do if I knew nothing about it is I'd Google it. I'd probably buy some sleep sprays. I'd buy a new pillow. I'd maybe change the mattress. You know, you go through a long process of trying all the easy stuff first, but ultimately you end up in a place where it's an internal problem that, like, you know, we need to fix our, the root causes. Yeah. Cause you know, when we were younger, we could sleep on the, you know, on a cabin bed with no duvet and you'd sleep for 14 hours having had like, you know, three bottles of wine so we know that you can sleep under any circumstance it's just that we end up kind of focusing all this on this external stuff because we think that's the problem but it's not it's very barely anything i mean of course if your room's too noisy or your bed's really uncomfortable then change it but yeah your message is brilliant really really is and then how about the quality like say for example if i one for example if i have alcohol which is a sedative how does that differ to say if i have a sleeping tablet is that a similar sedative and that i typically find it hard to get to this rest and restore place or is it are they quite different in their function and how it impacts us? So I guess they're both acting the same way that they sedate you, but aren't necessarily giving you the same restorative effects. So um, the type of sleep that you get on sleeping medication isn't the same as normal sleep. And when you've had alcohol, you might fall asleep quicker, but you don't tend to reach the same depth of sleep. And it's certainly not going to make you feel as good the next day as if you haven't had it. Um, so with alcohol, I would always just say to people, look, if you drink too much, which we all do every now and then, it doesn't matter, but just expect that you're not going to sleep very well and the next day you're not going to feel very good. That's okay, but then don't make the mistake of trying to go to bed really early the next night. Don't don't now let this spiral out of control and make all the same mistakes. So um, and don't do it too often, obviously, you know, try and you know, reduce the amount of times that you do drink too much before bed. So you won't sleep well, you won't feel good for it, but you can get back on track fairly quickly, but just avoid the the obvious mistakes that we might start doing. Mm, good one. Uh, okay, okay. so there's a, there's a topic I'd love to talk to you about is like we're morning people, we've always been morning people, like, and we're probably the extreme morning people, like we're kind of like young kids or whatever. And it's just the way we are. We've always been like this. You know, I don't set an alarm and I wake up at five, you know, somewhere around five, five to 30. And that's just how I am. It's how I've always been. And my kids, they wake up at six o'clock with no alarms. They always have done. And a question we're often asked is, geez, I'd love to be a morning person. How do I become a morning person? And as a sleep expert, how do you deal with when someone asks you that? Because my own belief is that, well, we have, each of us have different types of chronotypes or different ways in which we are. And you can probably move the dial a certain amount, but I don't think you can fundamentally change. If you're a night owl, you're likely to, you know, you can move the dial a little bit, but I just wondered, what's your thoughts on that? You're, you're exactly right. I think that most of us are designed one way or the other. You're either a night owl or um, a lark or kind of neither. Um, and therefore, you know, neither one suits you, but 
you can change it a little bit, but I, I completely agree. I think that, so so for me, I'm just not a morning person it's, and I sleep well, I do sleep well, but I very rarely wake up and feel like I could just jump straight out of bed. That the only time that ever happened to me weirdly was when I was pregnant. I felt great when I woke up, but that was the only time. So I know that that my sleep quality has absolutely no impact on how I'm going to feel in the morning. So I therefore don't pay any attention to it. I don't then think I've had a bad night's sleep because within half an hour, I'm fine. So I always encourage people to just go with what you've got. You know, you, you're right. You can tweak it a little bit. We can try and get up a little bit earlier. But if you are somebody who is a night owl, your circadian rhythm means that you don't develop melatonin until a bit later. So there is no point in you going to bed at 10 p.m., because you have read an article that you have to have eight hours of sleep because it's not going to work for you. You're better off getting six hours, but they're good quality and they're between 12 and six. So focus on quality, not quantity and work, yeah, work with your own, work with your own rhythm. Mm. Real practical sound advice. Like it's real, you know, acknowledging your basic human biology and trust it and try to get out of your head seems to be a big common theme yeah. of, yeah, of yeah, your I approach. Think, I think that and I never want to. I never want to go too far the other way, saying that I don't prioritize it because I, I really do. I, I do agree that sleep is obviously. I think it's it's really important. I made a job out of it, but I just can see how you know the people that I work with. Everyone has these same worries. You know, I've read this book that says I'm going to get Alzheimer's because I'm not getting this, and is it already too late? And I'm like, this is not helping. And there's no guarantees either way. You know, maybe you will get Alzheimer's, but maybe we'll find out in ten years it was because of whatever else. You know, it, it's so. It's so detrimental to people to 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 read and hear that stuff because there's so little control really that we can have we can have over it and things like circadian rhythms they they do you know they do play a part in it. So if you're somebody who you know struggles with your sleep, then probably shift work isn't right for you. You know, and, and I I work with people every now and then with shift work, but sometimes you just have to say, look, this is not right for you. You you cannot adapt your schedule like like this in the way that you're trying to. You're just spending far too much time stressed. Some people can do it easily, in which case it's, it's right for them. So. I think, yeah, work with what you've got a little bit as well. Great. Work. And then, then a can, can, final... I, can I ask, can I ask oh, you sorry, a topic? Well, this is a topic I'd love to talk to you about because as you said, Steve, there, you said uh, it's almost like getting out of your head and getting into your body. And I know, like, and we've discussed stress is it has a huge impact in terms of sleep. And we'll often say like stress is, you know, as you've said, it, your body releases adrenaline. And historically, you know, in evolutionary times, it was because a tiger was coming to eat us. And it, for know, example, a, for example, yeah, adrenaline's pumped around my body. All the big muscles in my body get more oxygen so that I can get the heck away from the tiger. So movement is almost like, is a great way of venting all this energy. And I just wanted the link between stress, sleep and exercise. And where is the like, how important is exercise in terms of sleep? Because, you know, people might think, oh, I've just got to relax and be mindful. But like, mm -hmm. I, I, like in my, my experience and my experience with my friends and family, those that move and exercise a lot, they tend to just fall over and go to sleep. And it's, it can be less of an issue. So, so the way I see it is it's sort of slightly the other way around in that I think exercise is brilliant because physically it makes you feel better, mentally it makes you feel better. And if you're physically and mentally feeling better, you're more likely to sleep better. So I think exercise is great. If you are somebody who struggles with insomnia, exercise is not going to fix it. So that way around doesn't work. It's not going to be a cure, but it is going to be, a, a, I guess, a jigsaw piece that you could add to fixing your sleep. So you don't have to exercise to sleep well. However, I would always recommend exercise because for all those other reasons, it is going to make you feel better and it gives you more energy. So forget the sleep. If you aren't sleeping very well and you exercise, you will get more energy. And that's what we're trying to replace. We're saying, well, if you can't sleep very well, how else can we get there so that we can take the pressure off sleep? So um, certain people react differently to it. Some people it has absolutely no impact on it. Other people would completely rely on it. Um, 
and others say it's not going to be a cure. So if you're not sleeping well now, don't think, okay, well, if I now go to the gym every day, I'm going to suddenly start sleeping better. It's unlikely to be that quick a fix, but it is always a good, it's always a good thing to do. Positive, good kind of sleep hygiene. You're brilliant at what you do. You really are. You have such a good knowledge. It's it's really impressive. One one of the things that that you said a minute ago, which actually is good to pick up on, is that adrenaline response. So, um, when so especially women in women who are going through menopausal symptoms, but actually anybody who's experiencing sort of real anxiety and panic, when you're lying in bed and you're flooded with all of those feelings and your heart's racing and you're sweating and and all those things, that that is the adrenaline response. The the best treatment that that I advise people to do is in order to teach your body that actually lying in bed, not being able to sleep, although it's rubbish, it isn't dangerous. It's not life-threatening. And your body is now reacting as though it's a life-threatening situation. The way that we manage that is become a third party. So lie in bed with all these symptoms and don't do anything to make it better. So just label them. So my heart's racing my palms are sweating, my mind's going nuts, my ears are ringing, I feel sick. Label all of these, these, um, label all of these physical symptoms because by labeling them, you become this sort of third-party observer. You're no longer getting involved in it. You're just accepting this is a completely normal, natural physical response to a situation. But your brain, you know, if you imagine your brain's like a fire alarm, it's miswired. It's, it's firing at the wrong time now. You don't need to fire because I'm in bed and I can't sleep. So you teach your body, and this is the same with any pattern. Like let's say I'm scared of dogs. I see a dog. My immediate reaction is when the adrenaline hits, I want to run the other way. Actually, if I was to stay there and just sit with that adrenaline for five, five, 10 minutes or, or even two minutes, my body would have to start reducing it because I would be learning that actually this is not life-threatening. And it's exactly the same with sleep. So if you are awake, if you're feeling horrendous, or if it's the build-up to bedtime and you're so stressed, actually just... Just feel it all. Let it all be there. Notice it because you are teaching your body. I don't have to escape. I don't need to get, you know, I don't need to run away. Makes a lot of sense. On the topic of adrenaline and sleep, typical when a male orgasms, their testosterone level increases. And there's this idea that I think it was called lipidemore. When a man typically ejaculates, does his lipidemore, he dies and he falls asleep. Night, night, love, boy, and fast asleep. <laughs> and I wonder, is there any association with sex and sleep and how it might impact it? Because I wonder when a man does ejaculate and his testosterone increases, is he more likely to stay awake? But the same for a woman, because, you know, you'll often read that uh, orgasms are really good for sleep, that if a woman can't sleep, you know, if they masturbate and orgasm or have sex or whatever, they'll definitely, you know, it can release stress. As you say, if it's a stress reliever, then then yeah, definitely. I mean, it's funny because you would think that actually men would be less likely to sleep straight after if that's the mm. case. But no, I, I don't know. There's the stereotype anyway of a man just as soon as a man ejaculates, it's like, <laughs> no, no, he's just not even time, like he's just gone. But I, I find the opposite. I don't yeah. find it the case at all. Yeah. Anyway. We kind of always um, advise people, you know, your bed should just be for sleep and sex. That's it. You know, you don't need to spend loads of time when they're doing anything else. And that's not to say, again, you can every now and then you can watch a film in bed and you can have a lie in, but generally just save your bedroom for those activities because um, that way you've taught your brain and your body what to expect while you're in there. Yeah, great. Sounds good. Uh, final one, sleep and mental health and say someone who's struggling with insomnia, really struggling with sleep. I'm imagining it has a serious effect on one's mental health and that it can be associated with increased depressive symptoms. Yeah, there's a massive link. I mean, insomnia and, and depression, anxiety go hand in hand. You know, whether whether the anxiety is the thing that triggers the insomnia or whether the anxiety then comes because I can't sleep, 
either way, there's always some sort of depression, anxiety, mood issue in there with the person who's not been sleeping for a long time. Um, and it does, it makes us less resilient. It makes you, you know, feel like you can't tackle the world. It's feeling, feeling tired is, is difficult to combat. So I do, you know, we do sometimes work with people to say, look, maybe medication and therapy is also going to be part of this treatment now because we can get the building box in place. We can do this other stuff. But actually, if you're feeling really, really low or you're feeling really anxious, maybe we need to um, have a little crutch to get you into the position where you can then take on the course. Because, you know, for me to ask you guys or for me to go to bed a bit later and wake up earlier tomorrow is, you know, maybe a bit pesky and not particularly exciting, but I could do it. If you're depressed, it's like climbing, you know, Everest. The idea of having to get out of bed earlier than you're ready to or stay up later. It's a completely different story for those people. So we always adapt. Like, you know, I adapt with people a lot what they what they can and can't do because it is different. And you're right, it absolutely affects mental health. I think it's one of the biggest biggest things that I work a lot with corporates and companies and we talk about the effects on employees that actually how can you perform well and be motivated and creative mm, yeah uh, okay J- just to bring the conversation back to where we started we started talking about women and sleep and cycles and periods and I just wondered as you said when a woman's body is on their cycle and it, it gets hotter and when you're hotter it's less it's harder to sleep are there for any women who are listening and kind of going okay well yeah that uh, I, I can empathise with that that's my experience what would you say is that just to accept it and lean into that and go well this is just part of my cycle and don't get stressed about it just expect it and acknowledge it or are there any other kind of tactics or things which you'd recommend to women at the certain stage of their cycle and their sleep uh, so yeah if you know it happens every month and it's going to be okay then acceptance is a big part of it don't try too hard to fix something that's going to fix itself um, but also don't go to bed too early. You know, these women are probably going to bed too early because you're already tired and you're tired anyway because of the, the hormonal um, phase that you're in. But stay up later, still get up early, try and add a bit more exercise in. Um, all the obvious stuff, diet, water, don't drink too much. All of those things are all going to help as part of that jigsaw as well. But when it comes to sleep, going to bed later, waking up earlier. And most importantly, if you do wake up in the middle of the night and your brain is racing and you're too hot, whatever, just get out of bed, you know, leave the bedroom, go downstairs and just do something else. Um, don't spend hours in bed because then what will happen is as your period goes, you, you're left with this sort of broken pattern and relationship with bed. So yes, acceptance, but you can put these things in place and they'll help to a certain extent. They're both, they're both almost counterintuitive because like you think I should stay in bed for longer if I'm going to sleep more. And then similarly, when I can sleep, it's like just sit and grit it out. Yeah. Well, our parents, our parents always used to say to us, didn't they? At least you're resting. Yeah, yeah. Not very restful. If people say that to me, well, at least I'm in bed. And so I would say, well, tell me, how rested do you feel at four in the morning when you've been awake for an hour? Like, how relaxed are you? Because if you genuinely feel like you're really relaxed, maybe there are some benefits, but most people aren't. I mean, that's a long time to be lying in bed, not able to sleep. And I say, just just give up, you know. A final, final one, and it's it's from a selfish point of view, like on the topic of um, women's cycles, pregnancy is obviously associated with insomnia. My wife's pregnant at the moment. She's struggling with sleep. Is there anything, is that just accepting it again and leaning into it and journaling and f- using the same Getting tactics? ready for a newborn it, baby. It pr- probably is. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it is your body. Marathon just, training. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, if she's, if she's anxious about not sleeping well, then that is going to exacerbate the problem because... Again, we're told, you know, you must sleep because it's good for the baby's health and it's good for your health and you're not going to be able to cope if you don't get enough sleep and all those kind of things. So if she has anxiety around it, then definitely doing some, you know, writing it down, doing some work on actually, you know, her coping strategy that actually she is going to cope and it won't be as bad as she thinks, you know, getting that sort of balance right is really important. Um, 
obeying these general things, even though she's exhausted, you know, the reality is if you're going to bed at 8 p.m., you're not going to sleep through till 6 a.m. You're just not going to. So um, either trying to stay up later or just accepting that you're not going to get that full night's sleep. So getting your expectations in line, um, focusing on what else you can do for the energy during the day. You know, can she do other stuff that makes her feel better? Um, but absolutely just accepting that it's it's fine. It's normal. You know, it's it's really hard to sleep. You know, you, you are being disturbed. You're growing an entire person. You know, it's that's not conducive to, to restful sleep every night. So, um, yeah, raise your coping. She'll be she'll be fine. And it is normal. And there will come a time when you can get back to a normal sleep pattern. Um, but now don't focus on it too much because it just might be five years in the future. Yeah. That's such as life. Well, maybe never. Who knows? Yeah. 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 Interesting. Interesting. I work a lot with new parents and it is around that sort of, you know, before you had a baby, you didn't go to bed at 8, 8, 8 p.m. and sleep till 7. So don't go to bed at 8 p.m. just because you've got a new baby and expect that you're going to be able to suddenly have this like, you know, 12 hour time in bed where you're going to be woken every two and go straight back to sleep again. That just doesn't happen. So, Instead, accepting that you're not going to get enough sleep and it's going to be broken, but stay up a bit later, you know, stay up with your partner, try and have a nice dinner, try and watch a bit of TV, just sort of like try and decompress a little bit rather than thinking sleep, 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 I must get more sleep. Because it's so easy as a new parent to become obsessed with sleep. I mean, I, I, I was as well. But you realize it is, it is just quite an exhausting time. So you're kind of fighting a battle to feel refreshed and all the rest of it when the reality is that that wouldn't really happen anyway. So um, just, in, you know, try to, to lean into it. That's the thing. Yeah. Like you said, that's the best thing. Amazing themes. It's really, I've learned loads on this and I thought I knew loads about sleep. So you're brilliant. You, you've got a course on sleep. Yeah. So I, I started off doing one-to-one um, -one sessions. That's how I, how I started. But, you know, the demand is, is massive. And I, I really believe as well that a lot of people, they don't need therapy to sleep better. They just need to know this stuff. They need to just see how to make a plan step by step. So I have an online course, which is um, where people join it's all sort of pre-recorded videos like how I'm talking to you now where you, you go through the steps um but I have a, a a private support group that anybody who joins the course and I answer questions on there so people can get that support because I, I like I said before I really believe that without the kind of therapeutic side of it you know understanding someone's anxiety around this topic they can't get better on their own so just telling someone the black and white rules isn't isn't enough um so the course is basically an entire CBTI program but sort of a um to work through in your own time with with support and it's it's been it's been um i, I was lucky i think because i launched it just before covid so people expected everything to be online i didn't have to kind of fight that battle of convincing people that it was as good as one-to-one -one because actually at the time there was no choice everybody did everything online and actually that was the best thing really for that was good time and well, what, what's the where can people find more what's the the url or what's the address um, so the insomniaclinic.co.uk is the oh, website. Perfect. I have a menopause specific course. So if women are struggling with hormone related insomnia and then the original course, which is, which is the normal one. Um, good. Yeah. So please visit. I mean, there's lots of free stuff on there as well. I've got a free mini course and a free webinar as well. And your Instagram's great as well. You've got nice, it's good. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. yeah it is. Well done. I'm not, particularly, I'm not particularly creative. So I find like the social media side of things actually is a math. That's the, that's the thing that I put off, you know, it's on my list and I don't do, but. Um, I have somebody who's helping me now and yeah, yeah it's starting to. <laughs> oh, that's great. And uh, are you going to turn it into a book? Because it's like, you know, the, uh, most of the other people who we found in the sleep, there's more men in it than women, it seems. And, it, you know, having a woman involved in it, you're going to represent women, which probably more so. So it's interesting because I had a meeting last year with somebody who did the course and she was an insomniac and it cured her sleep and she was really over the moon about it. And so we met up to talk about a book. 
and I would love to do it. It's absolutely my my dream to do it, but I've got a complete blockage about starting it. So you know how every week you rewrite your to-do list for the next week? Every week I'm like, book, next week, book. So I need to really break that down into something more manageable because I would I would love to do it. And I think- But you it- probably have it all done from your course. You probably just have the bones of it. Uh, m- m- maybe next week, don't write down book, write down intro of book. Yes. 1,000 words. I need to, yeah, I need to spend some time thinking about why I'm procrastinating so much on it because you're right. The course is already there. Like I've done it. I speak about it all the time, but um, yeah, for some reason I'm, I'm massively procrastinating, but I would love it. I would, I would love to, I'd love to come back and talk to you about it if I do do. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Do. Cause you're, cause I really think your message is very, it's different to lots of the other sp- yeah. sleep people we talked to. It is. It's wonderful. So yeah, thanks enough for your time. You're great. Thank you. Thanks very much. Anytime. Yeah, yeah thanks again, Catherine. All the best. Cheerio. Bye-bye. I really enjoyed that. I think Catherine's advice is so practical and pragmatic and so, like, just so nurturing and supportive, like accepting that at a certain phase in your life where you're going to struggle to sleep. If you have a newborn baby, if you were designed to sleep at that period of life, your baby would just sleep. I thought mm. that was brilliant. Yeah, very, very practical. I really, really got a lot out of that and I uh, hope you did. Yeah. And even the simple things that are so counterintuitive that if you're not sleeping, get out of bed. And that if you're someone that's struggling to sleep consecutively, try to literally restrict the amount of time you're in bed because it's not something you think of. You sleep normally schedule, do the opposite. Limit your sleep schedule, yeah, yeah, which I thought yeah. was to build up your sleep hunger. Very practical, really. I uh, hope you found value in that. And uh, hopefully we'll get to read her book some stage. In the yeah, future. and as Catherine said, she does have some free material on her website. Do check it out. Instagram is good. Catherine Pinkham. And uh, yeah, thanks Mel for listening. We really, really appreciate it. We are delighted to have you listen. If you enjoyed this episode, we did record a couple of other episodes on sleep. One with Russell Foster and one with He's a professor of circadian rhythm and Oliver Math is a neurologist and And a sleep doctor. So yeah, so check them out if you want to learn more. Um, And thanks Mel for being part of this. If you want to take to the next level, we've got our app. It's called The Happy Pair Healthy Living and that's uh, a full lifestyle solution to help you to eat more plant-based and become healthier. And if you do want to support the podcast, just give it a five-star review, please. Yeah. Thank anyway, you. we're going to shut up now. So. Thanks, Thanks Mel. Wish you a good day. Bye. 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 Bye.